one of the things we do, we hope in this sense, is, uh, is that we're mooring ourselves, we're rooting ourselves into God's Word so that our direction is set by what the Bible says and not necessarily what is particularly you know, exciting or what's going on in the world and, and our opinions uh, are steering the way instead of God's Word. But um, as you're making your way uh, toward Acts chapter 18, uh, I want to invite you there uh, and maybe just to, before we dig into reading this, we're going to read the whole chapter and try to pick up where we left off. I do also want to say that there's a sense in which God's Word also speaks to our culture. We talked about this last week. And, uh, and if there's nothing else for us, there's, uh, there's for us to be grateful this morning that we're meeting in an elementary school um, and some people did the same thing. They got together in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. And because of a, a deep tradition and probably a deep influence and deep brokenness uh, of racial hatred, someone came in and opened fire. And before that happens, let me just say that the gospel that we're talking about here is still relevant. The good news that God reconciles us to Jesus and reconciles that which is broken in the world, that which is broken between you and your spouse, Jesus reconciles and makes right. That which is broken between you and your neighbor, whether they're a different race, religion, you name it, God has sent Jesus Christ not only to set us free and to set us right before Him, but to set us right and give that reconciliation and all its power and all its glory to you and me. And the need for the reconciliation that the Gospel offers, and I would argue that only the Gospel can accomplish, is still necessary for today. So lest we begin to think this is a story about a church in conflict and in, a, in an area that needs the gospel and it's utterly foreign to us because we're a Christianized culture and a Christianized nation that does not need the transforming and reconciling power of the gospel. The week's events hopefully point us to our need, our great and desperate need for God and His reconciling love. So let's read in Acts chapter 18 beginning in verse 1. After this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled Him, He shook out His garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. 
But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, that is, Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Last week, we focused on a particular biblical model and method and strategy for the good news of Jesus to be translated and communicated in clear and understandable ways in our culture. We saw this in Athens where Paul, valuing the Gospel above all things, loved the culture enough to quote even their own poets and to speak their language so that they could understand the Gospel, but loved ultimately what God was doing enough to call them to repentance in Jesus Christ. We saw last week that ultimately the Gospel is our authority. The Gospel is our key focus. It's the language that, it's the unchanging message. Even though the culture around us will always change, it always has, we always look for ways in which we can creatively communicate this eternal good news of what God has done for us in Jesus wherever God opens a door for us to share it whether it's in your home, in your family, across a dinner table, in your place of business, you name it. Because ultimately, God has called us to be witnesses. And Acts has shown us a trajectory of the ways in which this takes place. Beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the first followers of Jesus aren't called to know all the answers to all of the questions, but Jesus simply says, it's not for you to know the times and places, it's not for you to have all the answers, but it is for you to be my witnesses. So therefore, you're going to be a witness First in Jerusalem, then in Judea. That's like the neighboring place. And then it's like Samaria, okay? That's the people you don't like. That's the people you don't necessarily think you want to tell about Jesus. This is particularly relevant for us. Because who wants to go to North Dakota, right? You know what I'm saying? But they need Jesus. I don't even know why I said that. It's not even fair. I mean, that's Samaria. That's the ends of the earth even. Beyond that... And we desire greatly not to have all the answers to all the questions, though that is, the, most of the time, that's our common temptation. But it is for us instead to be witnesses. Witnesses like we're called to give a testimony on a stand. You just tell what you know. 
You just tell what you've seen. And whether you're a doctor called to give testimony on a witness stand that tells about your expertise and what you know that's relevant, or you're just simply the guy who gets interviewed outside of a trailer park after the tornado runs through and you sound like a raving idiot, you just say what you know. And thank God that is exactly what God has called us to be. Witnesses. Not experts, but simply witnesses. And this type of witness creates a movement that expands and follows the line of that trajectory from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to even to the ends of the earth. And we're on our way to Rome where we'll end the book of Acts. And along the way, now the gospel has made its way to Europe. So now all the names are Greek in nature. Last week we were in Athens, probably the former center of the cultural world at that particular time, but it was still probably the center of the philosophical world. After all, it was the place where Aristotle and other important philosophers made their home. Probably none more important than Socrates and Aristotle. Similar to what we would think of as like an academic headquarters like Oxford or maybe something like Cambridge. But now we find ourselves in Corinth which would have been like the key cultural center. Corinth was the capital city of the the Roman province of Achaia. So it's the, the center of the political world in this particular province. But it's situated on an isthmus. Say that ten times fast. Such that in this isthmus where Corinth is located, there is easy access not only to two large land masses, such that there's a bottleneck of trade that comes from north and south and south to north, but it's also at the intersection of two particularly closely located masses of water. So much so that historians have found on several different occasions, now there's a a canal that's been built there. Um, It took hundreds of years to complete, uh, but it was quite common to take boats from one side of the water, put them on a cart, and then roll them across the land to get to the other side. So there not only was a great deal of traffic going north and south from one large, large mass of land to another, but there was also large amounts of traffic because it was easier, think about this, it was easier to pick a boat up and put it on a cart than it was to sail around. And so this is the intersection of culture, and it's the capital city. In addition to that, while Athens would have been a highly religious place, Corinth would have been the center of culture, unlike the leading and cutting edge. On the hill atop of, uh, of uh, right, right outside of, of Corinth was the Acropolis, which was the temple to the god of love, the goddess of love, Aphrodite. And history, historians tell us that at least one to 3,000 priestesses served in the temple of Aphrodite. And by priestesses, I mean they worshipped the god of love by every night descending upon the city and serving as prostitutes, by which the people worshipped Aphrodite. So this is not only the center of culture, but this is like Vegas. This is like Sin City, right? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? This, this is, oh you're, going, oh, you're going to Corinth, are you? Oh, sure you are. You're going to go worship Aphrodite. Sure you are. This is the culture where we find ourselves. 
It's particularly important because later, as I've showed you, this is kind of the history book. This is a theological, biblical, and ecclesiological history of the New Testament church that later finds itself connected to different letters written by Paul to these churches. If you skip ahead, you want to read into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you come to find out that there's a lot of pretty crazy things going on in this church at Corinth. And they seem to have I don't know, the kinds of problems that would be more common if we were a church that, say, existed in downtown Las Vegas than if we lived in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The kinds of things that they deal with as a church are radically different than other churches. And it's because they're situated in this kind of cultural center. It's a different world. Completely different. Different than anything else that we've seen up to this point. And so while last week we saw that there's a model and a method, as Paul went first to the people he knows and spoke his language, he then went to the people that he didn't know. And he translated to them and for them this good news in a way that they could understand. And Paul picks up where he left, leaves off and he does the exact same thing in Corinth. And while last week we saw a practical method, something that we can learn from, that we put the culture not necessarily in the top, but over to the side. We don't put the church and our own laws and our own understanding and our own inclusion in the group at the top, but we put it at the side because the gospel is the thing that is able to transform both. The culture alone has no value. It's neither good nor bad. It's just an expression of people. The church itself is neither good nor bad. It has no power. It's just an expression of the people. And if the people in the two, the culture or the church, are not transformed by the gospel, then there is no difference. And you and I are called to love our city and to love the people around us with a radical loyalty to the gospel. God has done something for us that is good news. But this week we see, I think, our practical motivation. Not just a method that we saw last week, but we see our practical motivation for what we believe, what we do, and the way in which we are called to love the people around us, to love our city, and to love our families. And I think what you'll find in the course of this particular chapter, if there's one thing that we see going on here, is that since God has many people to be one for the gospel in Corinth, Paul will not be prevented by hostile action from continuing his missionary work until God's purpose is complete. Despite what happened, Paul was going to carry on his method. Nothing is going to thwart him. And as we walk through this, I think there's going to be some possibly, some really practical ways in which this might apply to us. Encourage us, maybe motivate us. So beginning, we'll just read together. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. So now we know where we're going. We're in the center of the universe at this particular point. Other than Rome, there's probably not a more important city in this particular area. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. First thing you think you see here, companionship. We saw a method for doing things last this last chapter and for the chapters previous to that. But there's a beautiful thing that Paul illustrates for us. Paul is a rock star. And it is quite common for us to think, as we look at the book of Acts, and we look at the power of the church, for us to go, well, that was then, this is now. And there's some truth to that. We are not apostles, right? We are not the original 12 apostles who followed alongside Jesus. But here's the good news. We have the same powerful gospel in our own weaponry as they did. We have seen Jesus. For some of you, your story is different than the rest, but 
It's the same thing. Jesus healed you. For some of you, Jesus has set you free from something. For some of you, Jesus took what was broken and has made something beautiful out of it. In fact, some of you, I know your testimonies right now as we speak, Jesus is making something amazing out of some wreck that you've been in the last 6, 12, 18 months. And so also, we have this powerful good news. And even if we were like one of the apostles, note the first thing that Paul seeks out. Companionship. Paul knows that if this thing is going to happen, if the gospel is going to create a movement in this city, he's going to have to do so with some help. And the first thing he finds is companionship. I don't know about you, but since I don't have the gift set, the skill set, the courage and fortitude like Paul, just so you know, if I get beat up in the process of this, I may not be here next Sunday, okay? Just give me a little bit of time to recover. I'm certainly not going to walk another 50 miles to another city where it might happen again like Paul does. I'm not Paul. And so if Paul needs companionship and partnership in the gospel, creating a movement and transforming the lives of people, friends, how much more do we? If he knows the power of teamwork, he knows the companionship that's necessary for the gospel to change lives, then how much more should we? So this is an encouragement for some of you. This is happening. Um, the friendships that have already come to life in this room have blessed me beyond comparison. And I don't want to sob at you, so I'm not going to go into detail to describe those things. But suffice to say that the people that God has brought into my life, as the gospel is changing me and changing the people around us, have been nothing short of miraculous. And if we're going to be a part of a movement that is powerful and changes lives and changes families and changes our city, then let us never neglect the powerful, encouraging, an uplifting nature of companionship. God, help us to resist the temptation to think that we're above any of us in this room, that there's any one of us who is significantly smarter or significantly better or significantly more introverted or significantly more extroverted in such a way that you are more or less valuable than the rest of us. Let us see here that Paul, even Paul, an apostle, the miracle worker, mind you, sought out companionship to see this happen. Priscilla and Aquila, it says that they were kicked out of Rome. So apparently, the gospel had already made its way to Rome. Even though Paul is eventually, toward the end of this particular book of Acts, is on his way to Rome, apparently the gospel has already run out in front of him. And people, apparently, have already heard the gospel there. Because this is this is important. These people, Priscilla and Aquila, show up six different times. This is one of only two different times in which case Aquila is mentioned first. You even notice in the rest of this chapter, Aquila, the female, begins to be mentioned first. And every time that Paul drops their name by either saying, hey, Priscilla and Aquila say hi, or in the other ways he says, hey, greet Priscilla and Aquila in this letter, he always mentions Priscilla first. This is one of two times that he mentions Aquila first. Probably because, here you go ladies, remember this is Luke, Luke does this, probably because there's a sense in which Priscilla provided some powerful and really important service that was particularly important to Paul, such that he even mentions Priscilla first. 
So guys, remember what I told you when we were celebrating uh, uh, Mother's Day and how guys are, tend to be the, the worst on this? I would love, I would love to have, you know, as, as we kind of we learned about Timothy's mom and grandmother on Mother's Day, I would love for, uh, for there to be a great Father's Day sermon out here. I just don't have it, all right? So I'm sorry, Hallmark. I'll try again next year. But in the meantime, take note. The man is mentioned first here. Later, he's not. Let that at least be a challenge to some of you men. You're going to be a father. Let me tell you the fathers and the spiritual fathers that have encouraged me in my own life. If they were going to mention who it is in the family amongst these people in this room, who's the spiritual leader? Who is pulling the weight? Who is the equipper? Who is the encourager? Who would they name first? So this is not an excuse to be one way or the other. In fact, this is new, there's neutral terminology that doesn't say Priscilla and Aquila in any way that's particularly judgmental. There's no qualitative language around it. But can I just challenge you guys? What if, what if, and this is particularly important for the last five to six decades of people who call themselves Christians, what if it wasn't a runaway competition between women leading the way in spiritual matters in our home? What if... Women weren't running away, and I mean running away, with the lead when it comes to influencing families spiritually. That's why some of you, I even challenge you, it's really awesome. Some of you guys, I don't want to make eye contact, but some of you guys come and you worship here and you come to Gospel Community, for example, and you come without your wives. I cannot tell you how awesome that is, and to tell you how rare that is. It's common for women to come to worship without a guy. It's rare for a guy to come without a girl. It's rare. So thank God there's a sense in which this is actually happening. Priscilla and Aquila, important people. But it also notes that they were already believers. It doesn't tell us about their conversion. In fact, Luke seems to assume that they were already Christians. This is another particularly important point for us, right? Because there's, there's something in us that goes, is Acts really applicable for us? Are we really in America the kind of church that, that can see the things like the book of Acts take place in our city? I mean, after all, we're not apostles. Secondarily, aren't there already Christians here? Do we really need to start churches? Do we really need to reinforce churches? Aren't there already Christians? Haven't, hasn't this already happened? I want to show you a really awesome picture in this particular chapter. Because the question for Paul wasn't, are there religious people in the city? The question for Paul was, are there people who don't know the joy of Jesus? The question for Paul that drove Paul wasn't, are there already people who know Jesus and are religious in the city? The question for Paul was, are there lost people? Are there people that are right now living in darkness? that are worshiping idols that have no ability to give them the joy that they promise. Because the answer yes or no over here doesn't change Paul's motivation. The question as to whether there are lost people does. And that's why Paul can go into a highly religious place like Athens and shamelessly proclaim the gospel. Because if Jesus has taught us one thing, is that the people who are least likely to get the love and grace of Jesus Christ are people who are steeped in religiosity. Now this is scary because for you and I maybe who have been raised in a church or in religious background, we're actually at a disadvantage, not an advantage. 
And the people who miss it here are the people who are the most religious. This debunks kind of the myth that as long as there is a Christian, then, then we probably shouldn't be sharing the gospel. Rather, for us, it is, it is to have a motivation rooted in the gospel that as long as there are people who have not heard him and changed by the gospel, then our mission is not complete. We'll get to that in just a minute. But just take a look at the transition. Look at the way in which the gospel is held in light of vocation. Because he was of the same trade in verse 3, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, then Paul was occupied with the word, implying there solely the word, that he was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Right here we see a picture of what it looks like with something we call bivocational ministry. Right, Someone who maybe is serving a ministry of the gospel, but he's not necessarily being paid by that. We see this show up in First and Second Corinthians. But we also see a picture of what I would say is a vocational ministry. People who are supported ultimately, as we see in the book of Philippians, by churches in Macedonia. So once Paul and Silas got there, with this gift, with this support, a way for Paul to live and support himself and sustain himself, then he devotes himself fully not to tent making but he devotes himself to only reasoning to people and testifying to the jews and others that jesus is the christ you'll recall this especially when you read the book of philippians and he says oh by the way thank you for that gift thank you for your generosity you invested in me and the gospel ultimately was multiplied as a result there's a picture here there's also a picture of the gospel and vocation. So let me just stop here and just kind of stomp on the American dream for just a minute. This might sting a little, but just bear with me. Paul did not move to Corinth to make it big as a tent maker. Paul traveled to Corinth for the sake of the gospel. And his vocation of tent making served as a way for the gospel to be multiplied. Just hang on for a minute and feel the weight of this. His loyalty was to the gospel, not to his vocation. What if we based where we lived on the gospel and how it's to be multiplied more than we based where we live on our vocation. Just, just throwing this out there. This is just a picture of what a faithful leader like Paul looks like. Because it's not uncommon, is it, to say, hey, I'm moving. Oh, really? Where are you going? I got another job in such and such. Right? We're, in our culture, that is, that's completely common, is it not? No one would question that. No one would like, why are you doing that? Right? It's, it's, for families, the same way. No one would say, hey, I'm moving. Well, I, I want to be closer to my dad. Or I want to be closer to my family. Right? We, no one would question that. Right? No one would go, well, that, well, that's silly. But what if you told someone you were moving because the gospel was doing something somewhere? Hey, why are you leaving? Why are you moving? Why are you packing up everything? Why are you moving? Because the gospel needs to go to the people who don't know Jesus in that city. Now people will look at you strangely. Will they not? 
And so maybe just, I'm just going to throw this out there this, because this seems to be a model here and I want you to take with it what you will, but maybe sometimes we don't see the gospel change cities like these particular churches in the book of Acts saw them change cities because you and I don't go into cities for the same reasons that they did. And just maybe challenge the status quo. What if... God has uniquely gifted you with a vocation, with skill sets, with a job, with a career, not for you and for your prosperity, but ultimately for His glory. What if strategically God gave you the gifts and you're better at them than I am? And you're better at that job and that career and that vocation than some of the people in this room. And what if you and I took those gifts and went where the Gospel needs to be heard? rather than moving first for our gifts and then maybe seeing if the gospel could be fruitful along the way. It's just a thought. Because you remember, it would be radical, right? If you told someone, hey, why are you moving? Well, hey man, the gospel's moving over here and the gospel's creating a community. I'm moving to be a part of this church. People would think you're crazy, right? You know what's even crazier? What if someone asked you, why are you staying? And your answer was the gospel. Why aren't you moving? Why are you staying in this dump? Because the gospel has done something and the gospel has given me companionship and power. What if the gospel was more important than our vocation? What if our identity really was, I am bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ rather than I am a plumber, doctor, fill in the blank? When someone asks you what you do for a living, What if you said the thing that gives you life and gives you meaning in life and makes a living for you is the blood of Jesus Christ for you? That could be radical, no? So he takes this motivation. He runs into this new city. It begins to look for places in which he can share the gospel. But also, he is rejected by people who are the most religious. Make a note of that. The key for the world isn't that the irreligious will become religious. The key for the world is that they would hear the good news of Jesus and be transformed by it. And that's why you'll hear us say this over and over and over again, that in the parable of the two sons that Jesus tells us, the the rebellious prodigal is no more or less in good shape than the self-righteous, judgmental older brother. They both disrespect and dishonor the father. They both think they're better than the father and they think they know better than the father. And both of them need the mercy and love and invitation of the Father to be welcomed back into this inheritance. So it's easy for us to fall into the trap of saying, you know those those rebellious crazy people, you know what they really need to do? They need to get religious. They need to jump into some church or religious thing. They need to get more disciplined. They need to get their act together. that's, That's not Jesus speaking here. Even those people who are in a life that they have it all together, still need this saving love of Jesus. And in fact, the people who typically have their life together often are the least receptive. They reject Paul. They get angry. And they push him away. And he shakes the dust off of his feet. And this is not uncommon. This comes from a long tradition of prophets, of witnesses, of messengers. You can see this throughout the Old Testament. My favorite can be seen in Ezekiel chapter 3. You can flip there if you want. Um, But I'll I'll read it to you. So in Ezekiel chapter 3, God gives Ezekiel a message for his people. And we typically remember some of the beautiful things that God tells Ezekiel to tell his people that one day these dry bones, dead, 
lifeless bones in a field like a, like a decaying mass of, of death, like an, it used to be maybe a, a, a war was fought there, a battlefield full of dead bodies comes to life because God speaks to them. But at the very beginning, God gives the challenge to Ezekiel. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, and God said to him, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Think that. A messenger is like a watchman. Someone who sees impending doom, sees danger coming. So you and I, we just simply have good news and we know that something's happening, that there is hopelessness outside of Christ. But as good watchmen, we say, hey, watch out. Be careful. Jesus is really that good. Verse 18, he says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Did you catch that? Ezekiel had been entrusted with a powerful, life-changing, and life-saving message. And even though it was to go to people who were rebellious in nature, that's repeated over and over again at the beginning of Ezekiel, God says something amazing to Ezekiel. He says, look, these people are going to die for their wickedness because I'm a just God and I'm not going to watch them destroy others. I'm not going to watch them destroy those that I love and remain neutral. So I'm going to send you to be a messenger and they are going to die of their wickedness unless they hear that there is news. There is news of a God who draws them back to them. But oh, by the way, if you don't, they'll still die. Except that then their blood will be on your hands. Because after all, who sees someone in danger and then just lets them go about their way? Like what kind of person watches another person walk into traffic without going, no, wait, stop? What kind of hate must a person have to watch someone knowingly walk into danger without giving them some word of warning? So even Ezekiel feels the weight of this. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and then commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. But because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin And his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, and his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he surely shall live. And because he took the warning, you will have delivered your soul. What a powerful illustration that you and I have been giving the message, the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. And it could be, it could be that if you and I are willing to withhold this good news from people, it could be that you and I really don't get this good news. And our soul may be in more danger than theirs. It could be that if you and I do not believe that this good news is good enough to share with the people around us, then maybe we don't get it ourselves. And the message of judgment ultimately follows on, falls on us. So when Paul shakes the dust off his feet, he is saying 
like the tradition of the prophets of old, I have done my task. I have spoken this good news. I can in good conscience leave knowing that I have warned. I have served as a faithful watchman. I have said, look, look, what you're doing is not good. God's ways are better. They really are. I know it's radical. I know it's hard to believe, but God's ways really are better. Sometimes they're more difficult. Sometimes they cost you, but they really are better. And when they reject this, when they reject this from Paul, Paul simply says, fine, I'm going to shake off my clothes. I'm going to shake the dust off of my feet such that the blasphemy that they were speaking against Jesus, Paul says, I don't even want dust on my clothes from the place where they were blaspheming against the Lord of Lords, Jesus. So he left. And then, instead of quitting, I love this. So he goes to the people he knows, right? They speak the same language. They're all raised in the same tradition. They're all Jews. And they reject him. And instead of going, forget this, I quit. Do you know what he does? He does something harder. He goes to the people who don't speak his language. He goes to the people who are outside of the synagogue. And what do you know? As soon as he does, something crazy happens. This must have ticked off the religious people like you wouldn't believe. He sets up shop next door. Anyone catch that? They kick him out. He's like, I'm out of here. You know what? Forget this. I'm going to go next door. And then he begins preaching. And then, this gets even better, Crispus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, he believes and his whole household believes with him. And many of the people began hearing this good news and they believed and they participated in this belief by being baptized. Just quick, I throw this out there. This is always something we want to draw attention to. Baptism is important for us, and this is why. Because every time that we believe, where someone believes in Jesus Christ, they're identifying themselves with what Jesus has done for them. And so we, we believe that baptism, according to Romans chapter 6, is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so in the same way that Jesus Christ went into the grave, and because of the power of God through the Holy Spirit was raised and walked out of there alive forevermore, so also when we are with Christ in the same way that we one day will be buried in the grave, we come out of there. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus commands us to walk out of the grave. And you and I will not stay dead. And so we participate in this beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of being buried in the water and coming out. And in the same way that you're not afraid of drowning in baptism, so also neither are we afraid of staying in the grave. And we identify with the birth and death and the perfect life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So also, these people did the same. Make the Gospel clear. And then some amazing things happened that probably made people angry. Even the ruler of the synagogue believed. And God comes to him and he speaks to him. And I think this is particularly important. I kind of want to wrap up on this idea. God comes to him and he says something to Paul. A new proconsul comes, it says in verse 12, Gallio to Achaia. And as a result, there was probably a great deal of persecution. The Jews saw their opportunity. A new governor, a new proconsul came into power. And so this was probably their opportunity to really get rid of Paul once and for all. In verse 9, the Lord shows himself to Paul in a vision, and he says to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Two things here. 
first one we see is what we, I would say, is our theology of fear. Paul later tells his apprentice Timothy, look, God has not given you a spirit of fear. Anytime fear is your driving motivation, just know that's not God. God is not the author of fear. The enemy is the author of fear. The enemy works by fear. The enemy wants to motivate all of us by fear. Because we are, we are a mess. When, when we make our decisions based on what we're afraid of, oh, we're a mess. But God isn't the one who motivates us that way. Instead, God motivates us by giving us the power of the gospel and the love that comes as we're transformed and the sound mind, the confidence in Christ. And we see what he's done for us. And yet, Paul the Apostle, the rock star, the superstar, is confronted by God. Jesus the Lord shows himself to him. And do you know what he has to tell this superstar? Don't be afraid. Now notice what he tells him. In other parts of the Bible, this phrase is common. God always shows up, the angel shows up, and the first message is, don't be afraid. And that's typically because when God shows up, they, people, you know, they wet their pants, they fall over, it's crazy. It's, there's always kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm right here, right here. Don't be afraid. Look at me, I got something to tell you. Calm down. But this isn't the message here. He doesn't say, hey, do not be afraid. I want to say something to you. Instead, he says, do not be afraid of the people. And it seems like Paul, the superstar, Paul, the superstar, needed to be told and confronted by Jesus Christ, don't be afraid. I've got a task for you. The second thing we see is our theology of evangelism. Why do we tell people about Jesus? The best summary is right here. Jesus says to Paul, I have many people in the city. I have many people in this city. Why do we tell the good news to people around us? What a beautiful picture for you and for me to think about. God has done something for us before we figured it out ourselves, before we knew how good God was. He sent His Son to die in our place. And it just so happened that God sent someone, a messenger, with that good news to you and to me. He's talking about people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus, isn't he? He's talking about people who haven't been converted, who would never call themselves followers of Jesus. And yet, what does, he, what does Jesus describe them as? They're my people. They're my people. Be encouraged. You and I, we go into this city, we go into our families, not because you and I are clever enough to win people over with some nice-sounding argument, but we go into the city, we go into our families, we go to the people around us, and we encourage them with this good news of Jesus because ultimately Jesus Christ laid his life down to purchase them for himself. They've already been bought and paid for. They just don't know it. They've already been purchased. They just don't know it. Romans 10 puts it this way, that the Scripture tells us that everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For now there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all of them, and He bestows His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved, will be delivered. But how then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, there are people in your family, and I know they th- you think they're opponents to the gospel, and it seems like the last thing they would do is listen to you talk about Jesus. God is probably going to send someone to them. And you think your coworkers, your boss, your, uh, your subordinates, the people you live with, the people you know, the people that live across the street, the loud people upstairs in the apartment above you, right? You may not know it, but Jesus has bought and paid for their souls for eternity. For eternity. He has laid down His life to set them free. And they just don't know it yet. And how are they going to know unless someone goes to tell them? And how will someone tell them unless you and I, in companionship and conviction with the Gospel, send one another out? Paul ultimately stays there for a year and a half. Normally he plants a church, but I think maybe it's probably because because this is Sin City, because this is a, a pretty crazy place to plant a church, he stays there for a year and a half. He wanted to leave, I think, and it seems like Jesus came to cr- confront exactly that. Look, stay. And even though Gallio didn't turn against him, and all I would say to this is sometimes the government works pretty well with people who love Jesus, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, who cares what Christians are doing? Sometimes the government really cares. And over the last few chapters, we've seen cases in which people persecute the Christians and run them out. And we've seen other places like this where they're like, I don't even care. There's no good or evil in particular. It's just this is the way it's going to happen. And probably because of the issues they had to face in Corinth, Paul stays there for a while. And that's why I want to read to you, if you'll allow me, 2 Corinthians. I want to read to you the very first words that that Paul speaks to him, to this church, as he's in Corinth. I'm going to read to you verse, or chapter 7 first, and then I'm going to read to you the very first bit of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 7, we find out Paul's real settings. It says, Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, and we were afflicted at every turn. Remember? Because they got beat up. Fighting without and fear within. But God, and hear me, because this may be something you need to hear, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is comforted by you. As you told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve in the letter, I, I don't regret it. Because even though you were grieving for a while, you grieve no more. It was godly grief. And you suffered no loss as a result. Did you catch the language that he spoke to this church? Remember, we're in Corinth here where he's starting this church. And he seems to recall, and he says, when we came there, we came there with great affliction, with great suffering. 2 Thessalonians 7, which is a letter written from Corinth, says this, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, remember? Remember how the people got there at the very beginning of this? He's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So he's encouraged by their faith. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have now been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return now to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake. So even though he was successful, this is what 
Paul actually says about his experience in Corinth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For this we share abundantly. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in His comfort too. For we don't want you to be aware, brothers, of the affliction and the, that we experienced in Asia. Now listen to this. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who has raised the dead. And He has delivered us from such deadly peril. And He will deliver us. And now we've set our hope on us, on Him, so that He will deliver us. So friends, here's what I glean from this. Luke tells us the really happy story of starting a church in Corinth and the ways in which it played out really well. But it isn't until later that we find out the hardship, the affliction, and the depression that this messenger had, that he was constantly living with. And so here's what I will share with you. Not only for Paul, but since God has many people to be one for the gospel in our city, we will not be prevented by hostile action from continuing, continuing our missionary work until God's purpose is complete. And the same way that Paul came in weakness and fear, so also do we, right? Who isn't afraid of being rejected, of being turned down? Who isn't afraid of losing that promotion, of losing family? Can I comfort you with these words in the same way that Jesus has comforted Paul because he is saving people and calling them to himself so also he has saved us and has given us this good news, this good news that you and I cannot keep a secret. And how will they hear unless you and I tell them? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the ways that you have delivered us God, you've even delivered us from things that we didn't know existed. So for some of us in this room, maybe we don't, we don't believe in this whole Jesus thing. Uh, this whole Jesus thing seems like a crock and it's hard to believe. God, I thank you. Thank you that that's the case. Uh, thank you that you draw people to yourself. But would you begin to open our eyes to the possibility that you are doing something to start a movement? That by your cross you have purchased people for yourself? Would you begin in this room to let us entertain the possibility that you died not just, not just because, Jesus, you made people angry in Jerusalem, but you died because you saw our helpless estate and sought to draw us closer to you by it. But for those of us who know this good news, maybe we're just keeping it a secret. Would you begin to meet us just like Paul in our helpless and our frail and fearful state? Would you begin to show us that you ultimately have people in our city that you have drawn to yourself and you are sending us to share that good news? So therefore now help us to learn the language, help us to win people over such that by our message,
by the way that we live and by the joy that we display, they would be won over and hear this good news and be changed by it. Because it's only by your cross that this is possible. In Jesus' name, amen.